What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Barry Diller, the media mogul on reopening the economy. The damage is huge. I mean, of course, we will come out of it, but you can't at the same time think that this damage is not going to last and be tough to come out of. Why he thinks the end is near for quarterly guidance. Keeps companies accountable. It keeps companies doing dumbass work. And the role of business leaders to address unrest and inequality. I think they should be out there displaying their humanity. And also, yes, playing a role politically. Plus, unemployment and the misclassification heard around the world. I don't think I've ever seen so much interest in the footnotes of a jobs report before. The key takeaway here is obviously the unemployment rate would have been even higher in March and April as well. It's Monday, June 8th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You've been watching. The first week of June, just like the first week of every month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released its jobs report, revealing the state of U.S. employment from the month before. And during the coronavirus pandemic, these reports have garnered more interest and scrutiny than usual. March and April were difficult months for American workers. The first week of May, the Labor Department reported that over 23 million people were unemployed. So just a few weeks later, when the full May report revealed a surprisingly positive set of numbers, economists and market watchers were pretty excited. And we want to go to Steve Leisman, who has that number for Steve. There it is. Employment rises by two and a half million. I'm reading that right. Payrolls rose by two and a half million. Most expected the U.S. employment rate to hit around 20 percent in May. But the official rate turned out to be 13.3, substantially improved from 14.7 percent in April. Wall Street cheered the numbers Friday morning and the markets proceeded to close out the week on a high note, encouraged by a perceived recovery. I like this quite a bit, uh, uh, Steve, and uh, I think we need to, Yeah. To, I mean, I don't know whether to feel great or to feel bad for, for economic forecasters. I'm really not sure which, which, where to, to, to put all of my emotion right now. Yes, this unemployment rate is still worse than the Great Recession. And yes, 21 million people are still out of work. But 2.5 million did get their jobs back. And it's a good sign. At least it was. The good news was nearly eclipsed by discovery of a misclassification error that made the May report look better than it might actually have been. Here's Becky. We told you about Friday's jobs report. You've probably heard this by now, but it was stunning for many reasons, including how the forecasts of so many economists were just so wrong. Joining us right now to walk through the data is Heather Long. She is economics correspondent at The Washington Post. And Heather, there was all of this controversy around the mistakes or the miscalculation that uh, the Labor Department very upfront said, it, it, look, there was a problem in how this was, was compiled. 
A lot of people jumped on this and started seeing conspiracy theories, but you laid it out very well in an article this week and made me understand it much better, just in terms of how this is not something all that unusual. It's just these are unusual times. And for the department to try and keep up with this, these are career professionals who are there doing their best, but these are very unusual circumstances. What happened? Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen so much interest in the footnotes of a jobs report before, but uh, our story on the Washington Post on what's called the misclassification error went viral over the weekend and certainly generated a lot of buzz on Twitter. So what is this misclassification error? Basically, 4.7 million people were classified as employed but absent from work. But because they were technically employed, they weren't factored into the unemployment rate. So the BLS had put that note at the bottom of the main report that says, look, the unemployment rate probably should have been more like 16.3% instead of 13.3%. Now that said, the key takeaway here is obviously the unemployment rate would have been even higher in March and April as well. So April's rate should have been probably more like 19.7%. So May still was a decline in that. But obviously, a lot of people are saying 4.7 million is a lot. We've seen this type of error before during hurricanes, but we've never seen it in the millions. What, what does it do to the, 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 okay, so they were looking for a loss of eight and a half or whatever it was, million jobs, and, and we gained three or whatever. What does, does it change those numbers? Because that, that was really the number. I don't know if anyone was, had an absolute number of unemployment that they were basing well, their viewpoint of how the labor market was at this point. I mean, it matters. I understand that 13 looked better than 16. But wasn't it the big surprise in the number of jobs added? Or is that also 4.7 million? Uh, is it skewed that way? I don't think it is. I, I'll tell you, I've never seen so many people like really happy that there was a mistake because things were hopefully a lot worse than they were indicated. I mean, really, a lot of people wanted to feel I don't understand the thinking, but a lot of people were like, it's wrong. Thank God. It's much worse than we thought. Uh, it's very strange, Heather. But, but does it change the, the, the actual number of jobs? Yeah, you've hit on a great point. It does not. So I think a lot of people forget that the unemployment, the jobs um, survey is coming from two different surveys. So this impacts what's called the household survey, where people from the Census Bureau literally go and knock on people's doors and ask them, you know, are you employed? Are you not employed? Are you getting paid right now? Are you not getting paid right now? So that's where this misclassification error occurred. The other thing that they do for the jobs report is they actually look at payroll data from uh, over 120,000 companies and government entities. So similar to what ADP does that we all were talking about last week as well. And so in the payroll number is the one that feeds into that headline 2.5 million job gain, which was positive. So that was not coming from people who you know, who were claiming they were employed. That was literally coming from the data that businesses have on their payrolls. So the forecasters still stink. I want to get back to this idea of a conspiracy. All of the people who thought the Obama administration was messing with the numbers now are convinced the numbers are right. All of the people who thought that uh, the Obama administration never fudged with the numbers now think the Trump administration is doing this. Can you walk through the details of why those are both ridiculous ideas, why these numbers are the best that these career professionals can come up with, just how many households are, are measured with this, what the questions are, and why the, the BLS does not actually mess with the numbers. They want to make sure they're hands off so they're not seen as being somebody who is actually contaminating the evidence. Walk us through that. 
Yeah, the va- the reason why the vast majority of people who actually spend their their days looking and digging into this labor department data do not see any signs of rigging or let alone any sort of political tampering is because the BLS is being incredibly transparent about what happened here. And these numbers, as somebody said to me, it's a well-oiled machine. It's a highly automated process. They are using the same methodology that they use every single month. And it, the way that this data is calculated is you know, very standard. They go out and talk to 60,000 households for that household survey that feeds into the unemployment rate. And then they go out and they look at over 120,000 business payrolls and government payrolls. That number feeds into that headline 2.5 million job gain figure. And so that's done the same way it's done every month. It's also important to keep in mind that this is an agency, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, with over 2,000 career employees, many of whom are statisticians and economists, uh, the, the best of the nerds, if you will. And, you know, again, those people, their whole careers are staked on this. Many of them work there for decades. The only political appointee is the commissioner of the BLS. And former commissioners assured me that those numbers, they don't even see them until Thursday when the report is finalized. So shortly before they're sent to the president, there is no time to tamper with them. They do not have access to the underlying data. As a matter of fact, most people do not have access to all the underlying data. They would only have access to parts of it. I'm fine with the BLS. I just think we're back to the uh, to the people that do this for a living and how you can miss by. Is that 11 million? <laughs> that's 11 million. That's 11 million jobs error, isn't it? Eight and a half plus two and a half. Minus, I mean, that's a big miss in terms of uh, not being able to tell how many jobs were either. But, but then again, it's a net number. So you always got to subtract out how many were lost from how many were gained. And it, when, we have, when it's 200,000, I think that the, the error in that is like 300,000, right? Most, most months. It's like there's such a big margin of error anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing that I would say, and after talking with many staffers, and then I heard from even more people, as you might imagine, after the article came out, who've worked at the BLS, worked with the BLS, been on their data review committee. And the one thing that people did say to me is, look, that this problem occurred in March and April and May. They were very transparent about it all three months. It's understandable we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is a we, how many times can we use the word unprecedented situation? Obviously, this is a little bit hard to do your normal process and procedures on, particularly as you try to knock on people's doors and talk to them. And so there, but their surprise was the BLS was very upfront about this in March and April, but they were also trying to correct it. They were trying to add additional questions to their survey to figure out why so many people were being marked as employed but absent from work for, quote, other reasons. You know, other reasons is one of 11 categories in that question. Why couldn't they ask enough follow-up questions in May to really figure out how much of this was pandemic-related? So the error rate went down a little bit in May, but it was still very high. And what I try to remind people is the term misclassification error was used for the first time in May. It actually did not appear if you, you know, go on your computer and search find. They didn't use the term misclassification error in April, only in May. And the question really for my, in my mind is, why haven't they fixed it yet? And I think we should hopefully see it fixed by June. If not, that's going to seem a little off to me. 
Heather, thank you. It was a a great article, incredibly explanatory, and uh, we appreciate your coming on today. Thanks for your interest. Next on Squawk Pod, IAC and Expedia Chairman Barry Diller weighs in on business, leadership, and seizing the moment in 2020. You'd like to think that this particular moment is going to be more enduring of change than previous ones. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. The coronavirus pandemic has battered the U.S. economy as schools, restaurants, theaters, and other businesses were ordered to close their doors in an effort to slow the spread of the illness. About six weeks ago, we spoke with billionaire and media mogul Barry Diller, chairman of IAC and Expedia Group, who described the landscape as cataclysmic. Drive down streets and you see big cities, small cities, and you'd see nothing is open, and they're ghost towns. The damage that is being done every day is enormous. Everybody needs to be bailed out of this one-time thing, and we'll worry about paying the bills later. We caught up with Diller again to get his take on reopening the economy and the role of business, employers, in reopening it fairly. To give a little background, Expedia Group brands include Expedia, Hotels.com, and Travago, while IAC's brands include Ask.com, video sharing service Vimeo, and the news site Daily Beast. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's good to see you. Uh, you know, last time we spoke about six months, uh, six weeks ago, rather, um, you had a, a relatively dour outlook about the economy, calling it cataclysmic. So before we even begin, how are you <laughs> seeing things now that the economy is starting to reopen? Well, it is starting, but there's enormous damage that's been done. I mean, you just can't have the level of unemployment that you've had, the closing of almost everything being shut in for uh, six, eight weeks, something like that here and there. The damage is huge. I mean, of course, we will come out of it, but you can't at the same time think that this damage is not going to last and be tough to come out of whether it's the small business or whether it's travel or whatever it is. I mean, we're starting to see with travel, you know, travel was down. I mean, we went from 300 million a day, basically in uh, revenue to 10 million a day. Uh, and we're now back up where uh, I'd say uh, having been off uh, 95 plus percent, we're now off about 80%. But by the way, being off 80% is not exactly great news. Now, We've taken care of our liquidity. We're not you. We're not letting this period. We have not let this period go to waste. We, there's no question we'll come out stronger. But until people have the less fear to travel and have funds to travel, it's not going to come back. And that's true, certainly across every board, except let's call it internet-based virtual businesses. Well, Barry, let, let me ask you this then. You know. 
so many of uh, folks in our audience are investors. They're trying to think about their, their portfolio. They're trying to think families who are just trying to think about this. Right now, there is an expectation that there is going to be a V-shaped recovery. We were talking about where we will be 12 months out, given that, given that right now the market is predicting 12 months out, are gonna, it's going to look a lot better. Yes. Andrew, are you predicting your, what, 12 months out? What's the definition of V? I mean, you got to do it based upon, obviously, time. Uh, I don't I, I can't conceive that V actually takes place unless your you know time horizon is multiple years. It's it is going to be it's going to be a I mean, a, a bromide U shape, but it's going to take a while. Now, you know, the markets can jump over it and say, well, it's going to happen at some point. So let's just let this period be bad news and we'll just not go to the place where it's going to be. The question is, how long is it going to take? To get there and what kind of continuing damage are you going to see from the damage that has already been created i don't think that's an easy track but of course eventually for sure yes right i mean so what I, do I don't you know think how you in can terms be of how investor. long that track looks like how long i haven't i mean come on uh, ask uh you know your weather forecaster um well let me ask you this then um there's the issue of guidance. There are companies that are, are providing guidance or trying to provide guidance. There's companies that are stopping providing guidance, at least temporarily. There's others. How do you even think about that in this environment? Well, what I think is actually great is that uh, uh, a number of companies, quote, pulled their guidance. I, it kind of gave us the opportunity to say, you know what? Guidance is a bad business. We're out. We're not doing it anymore for either Expedia or for IAC. It has been, you know, it's, it, it is predicting the future uh, in granular terms, which is what guidance has become. This whole concept of meet and beat and the whole industry that has grown up around it. But I mean, it started off like many things, you know, makes made some sense. But as it's become institutionalized, it has become a ritual for bad, bad, bad ritual. Companies spend too much time massaging the process, getting the model right so that they can always beat, uh, not miss expectations. And the markets are always reactionary on that wildly short-term dumbness of what happened in the next quarter. And even if guidance has gotten so institutionalized that you beat it, but then, of course, you have to give guidance beyond that for the future. And generally, what most companies do is try and massage it down so that they can beat it. The whole thing is nuts. And uh, as a, 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 the idea that you've got people who should be otherwise productively occupied, actually doing some work, that are uh, not running around, literally, but who are spending huge amounts of time uh, playing this guidance game to no Good. Other than having analysts, I mean, yes, it helps analysts, but, you know, analysts should, I would think if I was interested in company, I wouldn't be interested in the granularity of this or that metric. I'd be interested in what the long-term prospects are. That is presuming, of course, that I'm going to be a long-term investor. If I'm in and out, then I'm just playing another kind of game. So it should be ended. I would hope that this period would allow all these companies to say, be gone with you guidance. It's not a good game. Spend your time actually 
figuring out where should he, you should invest your money, how you should run your company. And anybody who runs their company for a quarter is a bird brain. Nevertheless, everybody who's involved in guidance, everybody pays attention to it, puts time in on it. And anyway, I have gone on. It's wasteful. It should end. Everybody should. I mean, I'd love to lead a parade. Uh, I'm not that good a parade leader. But uh, to have it as it you know, started, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago, probably something like that, 25, uh, uh, I'd love it as a practice to end for everybody. So there. Barry, let, let me ask you this. I, I'm in violent agreement with you, but there are investors and analysts and others out there who say that guidance keeps companies accountable. What do you say oh, to please. them? That's absurd. I mean, keeps companies accountable. It keeps companies doing dumbass work. Uh, what is account? Look, you know, all companies say we run it for the long term, etc. And then you ask the question: What the hell are you doing, spending time on meeting? beating a number that you put out either three months ago or six months ago or a year ago. What is the point in that? If you're in a, if that really tells an investor something, investor, good luck to you. I actually think one of our companies is thinking about instead of guidance, not going to do, is thinking of monthly reporting. Just put our figures out every month. <laughs> uh, there are some issues about uh, you know, about uh, telling the competition things you might not want to tell them if you did that. But, you know, that's healthy. Uh, in, th in that discussion, one of my colleagues said, why don't we just put them out every day? Uh, let it be totally transparent. We look at the figures. They can look at the figures. Make of them what they will. We're certainly not going to uh, have uh, an investor call every day uh, to tell them about it. I mean, you. but by the way, I think actually that kind of transparency is healthy. I don't mean every day. I think that's silly. But every month kind of makes sense. This quarterly thing hey, Barry, truly, it, truly makes zero sense. Although there are probably CEOs, Barry, who would tell you the idea of having to deal more frequently with the investor world, that it already takes up so much of their time. I've talked to companies, uh, the CEOs of companies who have been private and then public or vice versa. And the one thing they say is the amount of time they have to deal with the investment community already is kind of off the charts. I'm not suggesting they deal more with the investment community. I mean, frankly, you know, I used to be on the board of the Washington Post company, which uh, took uh, from Warren Buffett a lot of uh, uh, a lot of sensible policies. And the Washington Post company uh, published their figures quarterly as they were mandated to do, never talked to an analyst ever, and once a year had a meeting for multiple hours where they would explain their business. Uh, during the time that the Washington Post company did that, which was consistent for, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something, quite steadily their stock rose and brought wealth to everyone. Uh, so it's not like you have to spend more time. I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend time with your investors. However you do it, uh, once or twice a year in, uh, in complete kind of transparency of whatever it is you're doing, that's fine. But this, to say that they'd spend more time, uh, no. To me, if you get rid of guidance, you spend less time. Because you say properly, whether you do it in annual, biannual, or in 
any other forum of talking to your shareholders, you give them more depth, more breadth, more sensibility about the business than you can in fooling around with 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 models that are based on a phony premise. You cannot predict the future. Full stop. Oh, that's perfect, Barry, because I, I, that's how I was going to start. Because predictions about the future, especially about the future, are hard. I think that uh, that's what Yogi Berra once said. So I want to just ask about the perfect media company for the future from someone like you that knows exactly how to put things together and have done it so many times in the past. So trying to figure out, what if you have theme parks? What if you don't have theme parks? What if you do have a broadband business that's pretty solid? What if you're getting into streaming in a good way? What if you got mobile? What if you've got, I mean, who's, for lack of a better uh, example, take Comcast, AT&T, and Disney. For this new future we're looking at, who, who's, who's got the right mix? What would you be doing? What would you get rid of? What would you add? How would you approach the future? Oh, God. Well, first of all, I mean, you take the, the three of them. Disney, Disney's everlastingly good. I mean, sure, they're investing money in uh, uh, in streaming and an uphill road for sure to establish it anywhere close to Netflix and Prime or Amazon. That's tough. But they've had early success with it, whether on a dollar basis in the first few in the first few years, you can't count. Basically, there's no point in making in counting other than are you getting a lot of subs? Don't look at the P&Ls. This is a 10 year plus concept, which is they have to deal directly with the consumer. So they're going to do it. They've got the assets to do it. Theme parks, of course, are going to come back and they're a great business. That's fine. Comcast, on the other hand, does deal directly with the with with the consumer through uh, 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 broadband, uh, and that's their great strength. And they're one, they're kind of they're nicely hedged, so to speak, if you could call it a hedge that way, in terms of programming with uh, all of you people and all of uh, NBC, NBCU. And I think they've got a very good idea uh, to get into streaming as against all the other players, of saying, let's do an advertiser-based streaming for all whole sorts of reasons. It's less of an investment, and it's an alternative concept. I think it's a, I think it's a shrewd concept. It's, by the way, not shoving all your little stuff onto the middle of the table, but I think that's prudent. Comcast is going to be a strong company forever, partly, be, I mean, partly because of the business that was built on cable that then transisted to broadband, but partly because it's got great, it's truly great management uh, through the Roberts family. I wanted to just ask you, bring the conversation back to your business for one second, which is the last time you were on our air, you talked about the fact that you used to spend $5 billion uh, for Expedia in terms of advertising and that it wouldn't be more than $1 billion this year. Has that changed at all in terms of your thinking given the reopening and, and some people's expectation that it might be faster? I'm not quite sure I understand. If you're talking about the spending primarily we do with Google, well, look, you know, Google is a monopoly uh, in advertising and a total monopoly in the rest of the world and close to it in the U.S. Uh, and uh, if you're in an Internet business that uh, depends upon consumers finding you, you have got to pay Google. And over the years, Google, we've all thrived at it, by the way. So it's not a terrible thing. But over the years, Google has continued to, which is what monopolists do, they have continued to, so to speak, squeeze the pipe. And so 
uh, your ability to get free traffic every year diminishes and you have to pay more and more for it. Uh, that is the fact of that life. I think eventually there has to be regulation that's going to uh, not reset that, but put the playing field on a, on a certainly a little more level basis. Are we going to spend at the same level in the past that we have in the future? I do not believe so. Again, there are many things that come out of a crisis. And one of the things that come out of it is that you really do get to assess things in a different way. Uh, or in a, in a way absent of, well, I'm just grinding towards 15 or 20 percent or whatever it is uh, growth. And one of the things is to say we need direct traffic to our businesses. That's what we need. And that's what we're going to strive for. And we're going to try and get out of this auction mania that we're all not all. Basically, there are two players in in travel uh, advertising us and booking.com and we bid against each other and this game is rigged to get us to do so. I think we'll do less of it. Barry, also talking about social media platforms and other big tech companies, curious if you'd weigh in on the debate about free speech on Facebook and uh, the steps that Mark Zuckerberg has taken in terms of keeping yes. the platform or at least not censoring the president relative to yeah. the position Jack Dorsey has taken on Twitter. Hmm. Who are you with? Uh, I, re I respect them both. I, I, I've long said that I thought that Mark Zuckerberg, when he said that he would not want to regulate political, <clears throat> excuse me, speech, so incredibly hard to do. Uh, most political speech, most political advertising, negative advertising is a stretch of the truth anyway. Uh, and uh, uh, getting into the business of doing that, I think, is uh, uh, is is probably extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do. And I thought that his principled uh, position on this, which he's been articulating for several years, I thought made a lot of sense, and I think does make sense. I think it's I think it's pragmatic. On the other hand, when there are when there's information that is incites violence or does other truly antisocial things in the case of Twitter saying that they were going to put advisories on uh, Donkey Kong, our president's uh, 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 crazo tweets uh, and destructive ones recently, for sure. Uh, I thought that was a good principled stand. I think that's, that's, that's smart. I think, by the way, Facebook I don't think their policy, and I'm not absolutely certain about this, but I don't think their policy is kind of absolute. I think if there's violent stuff on Facebook, I would hope that they would cove their policy to do the same thing. But as far as general speech, that's the life of the Internet. And, you know, you ask, if you give anybody voice, some of that voice is going to be nasty. Some of that voice is going to be things you don't want to hear about yourself. God knows anybody who goes on a Slack channel or on a uh, channel that, uh, uh, that their employees use uh, uh, is going to read things about them uh, that are going to make them angry and hopefully not reactionary. <laughs> I, we had a town hall meeting and after it, you know, the, there's a whole scroll of things you read, you know, hundreds and hundreds of comments and whatever. Most of them interesting and positive and you know, certainly some negative and, uh, uh, 
my favorite one was, and I can't say it, but you can do it, which is uh, uh, screw off the better word, or not better word, the harsher word, screw off and die. That was one of the comments. And I thought, okay, uh, I'm not going to exactly deal with that. But again, you put you put stuff out for comment or you give people voice. Some of it's not going to be stuff you want to hear, such as life. Get over it, as they say. Hey, Barry, uh, Elon Musk is on the front page of The Wall Street Journal because he said he thinks Amazon needs to get broken up, potentially. Um, you just said Google, you think, is a monopoly. Do you think they need to get broken up? No, I don't. Uh, I, I, I also, I mean, I really like Elon. Uh, he's at least he's human. Uh, he's excessive and all of that, but uh, my God, what he has accomplished. Uh, but um, I think there needs to be regulation. I think when you get to monopoly status, and I, Amazon is not a monopoly, uh, and what, I, what would you break them up into? Um, that, that, I think that's uh, dumb. Uh, but when you are, when you have a monopoly status, you do need regulation because the there's no, you know, it's it's physics. You're a monopoly. You act like a monopoly, one way or the other. That 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 is pure stuff. Meaning it ain't going to go any other way. That needs regulation, sensible regulation. Obviously, I'm not. I don't believe that things should be regulated. But, I, but by the way, I grew up in a regulated business. I grew up in broadcasting. When uh, you owned television stations in the analog world that were licensed by the government and you were afraid that they'd be taken away from you, which they could be, unless you, quote, behave. There was a fairness doctrine, which I would like us to reinstate, which said you had to have two points of view if you were going to use the public airways. The way all of this stuff has now become public, uh, and so those that that training, I I I, I think was very productive uh, and and sensible. So anyway, stop me because I could go um, on. Barry, before before we before we let you go, just wanted to get your thoughts. Really, your thoughts actually on you've always been outspoken on politics and on very uh, controversial issues in this country and. We are clearly at some form of an inflection point, given the protests and unrest in this country. And it, it seems like companies and CEOs are being more outspoken about this issue than they've ever been before. How outspoken should or can they be? Well, they are being. And by the way, before I get to that, I do want to say one thing, because I, I just it's one of the things that I and I'm doing it. Obviously, I have a vested interest in travel. Uh, but one of the things that people... The problem right now is that people are afraid to fly. And until people are going to fly internationally, nationally, whatever, travel and life is not going to get vibrant again. What I don't understand is why don't the airlines tell everybody that getting in a plane and not social distancing, because you can't social distance, but assuming you wear a mask, which I think, you know, of course you're going to wear a mask on a plane. Being in a plane, the air circulates 15 to 20 times every hour. You couldn't be in a safer, fresh air environment than on an airplane as against being in any enclosed space where that doesn't happen. And that's been true for, 
you know, airplanes for quite a while now. And I'm just shocked that people, airlines don't get out there and say, uh, you know what, uh, given the circumstances, that's safe. All right. Sorry. I just that's my my not my semi not commercial for directly for Expedia. But it is that I really think people have got to reassess their risk profiles in terms of getting out, getting an airplane. Anyway, to the question, I think what you're seeing, the, the hope is, is that it's just not a one-time thing. It's not a white guilt thing uh, that is getting these companies, individuals, et cetera, to give in voice at this particular point in time. Uh, it's great that it's happening. The question is, what happens three, six, nine months, 12 months from today when the next crisis that isn't about this comes? I'm just amazed that now the uh, coronavirus seems to be yesterday's news and nobody's talking about it much. Uh, hopefully, we're thawing out naturally and whatever. But uh, I'm really hopeful that, that, that this is not this one-time incident-generated moment and that uh, whatever plans companies do are not designed to cauterize the moment. Not that they shouldn't try and do that, but that our real the work mm -hmm. should be designed to make stuff really long term. And the thing that companies can do, not the only thing, the, the thing that companies can do uh, is to is is dealing at the top of the funnel, hiring. Companies have to do better at hiring minorities. Companies have done pretty well on gender. They've not done very well on hiring. I think that's the issue. Anyway, sorry, I did the bamboo. No, no, no. But uh, and let's just stick with this for one more moment, which is the, I think part of the issue and the question is how, and I hate to say it, some of this is political, meaning it requires policy to change, political policy to change, and how engaged you think that CEOs can or should be, and how outspoken. You've been outspoken on a lot of issues, uh, much more, frankly, than a lot of others. I think it's the responsibility of uh, somebody who's got responsibility for an organization to be out there uh, uh, saying what they think. Uh, and given that these companies are so overwhelmingly run by decent, thoughtful uh, non-Donkey Kong folk that uh, I, I think they should they should be out there displaying their humanity uh, and also, yes, playing a role politically. Uh, again, it, it, you know, there are many shades of gray here on the spectrum. Uh, and uh, but I I don't know. I only think that I, this period, you'd like to think that that uh, this particular moment is going to be more enduring of change than previous ones. There seems to be, and again, it's right now in the moment, you can't judge it. A year from now, we can make a judgment. It does seem, though, I mean, look, you've devoted, I don't know, I guess a week or so to talking about these issues more than I've ever right. seen. Um, so maybe. Barry Diller, 
Uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure to spend time with you. Uh, you are candid and your insight and your provocative thoughts this morning have uh, helped all of us. And we appreciate it very, very much. And we look forward oh, well, to talking you. to you soon again. Thanks, Barry. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. And that's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, legendary investor Stanley Druckenmiller admits his latest market mistake, but also his best money decision yet. I've done a lot of investing in my life. I've had some misses and I've had some huge wins. The best investment I've ever made in my life was the Harlem Children's Zone. Druckenmiller's investment in upending a cycle of inequality in New York with the incoming CEO of the organization he supports, Harlem Children's Zone. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.